0: Welcome to the Seabag Podcast, episode 21 with Micah and Brian.
1: And today's episode is brought to us by Soul Customs. Soul Customs is a metal fabrication shop that designs and builds the visions of their customers. From outdoor kitchens, various tables, wall fixtures, repurposed functional art, bar taps, and much more, they have a creative process that gives their final product a sense of satisfaction that will fill your soul. Check out their website at soulcustoms.com or on social media, Facebook, and Instagram at Soul Customs. Send them a message and bring your project to life.
0: And today our guest uh, on the show, we're excited to have him, uh, Mr. Richard Cartagena. Uh, He joined the military in the United States Marine Corps in 1988. Uh, Richard worked for the the First Anglico uh, during Desert Storm from 1990 to 1991. Uh, He started with the VA as a peer support specialist and now works uh, as a veterans outreach specialist at the Harlem VA Center. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Thank you, gentlemen. It's really
2: a pleasure and honor to be here.
1: So, Richard, uh, we're going to go ahead and start this off with the early life of Richard Cartagena. We're we're going to re-butcher your name a thousand times, so just...
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um I was born
2: uh right here in Brooklyn, New York. Born and raised in uh New York City, you know, grade school, junior high school, high school, and then from there into the military.
0: Um, decision to enlist. There's a there's a lot of in our shows and the people we, we talk to and, and uh even Brian and I, there's always some sort of a past uh with you know family members that joined the military at an early age you know going back World War 1 World War 2 uh, do you have any kind of um any kind, anything that led you to decisions to enlist and in your early life uh hobbies that may have you know led you to that direction or well as a
2: young man i was a handful uh come from single mother with many brothers and sisters, and she tried her best, but it wasn't easy. So with the minimal supervision that you give a young boy, there's all sorts of things to get into. So I got into as many of them as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reform school, truancy, fights, arrests, Smoking weed, drinking beer with the friends, hanging out, because, you know, I was, grew up in a projects. Mm-hmm. That was the atmosphere. And, you know, if you didn't want to become, you know, the next victim, you had a fight to keep your little lunch money, your little sandwich. And that progressed to, you wanted to keep your sneakers, you wanted to keep whatever you possessed. You had a fight to keep it. That's just what's the atmosphere. But that led to other things, which from one fight to keep your stuff to a fight to take somebody else's stuff. Mm-hmm. That progression as a young man. You don't see that coming. You don't have the time. You can't see past the nose on your face. You're just doing it. Mostly economic lack of opportunities, school systems, public school systems they don't prepare you for much so you go out there one day you turn around you're graduating now you got to find your way in the world but your experiences and your environment have not provided you with real opportunities or even vision of what could be so you make it up as you go along By the time I was 21, I have, you know, been in all kinds of more trouble than not trouble. Graduated high school, tried college, but all I did there was party and fight. You know, it was, uh, I'm not a big dude. So all the big dudes always trying to, you know, set their their, uh, position in the social hierarchy by picking on the little dude. So what happens? So I've had a few lumps, but I've given just as money as I've gotten. One day you find yourself, or I found myself I'm 21 years old, working in a factory, telling myself, this is not what I want to do. So like a lot of kids, you know, let me try the military. A lot of people from not just staying the inner cities, but a lot of walks of life I've learned. Use the military as a way out to get out of where they're at. And that was for me. So I was in Brooklyn. I was raised in Queens, but I was in Brooklyn to visit my cousins and I went to the recruiter. And, you know, as you go to one of those recruiting stations, there's all the services are there. All the services are there. Mm -hmm. So my process of elimination was basically flipping a coin. And see who came up last. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, Marine Corps one. I went in there, took the ASVAB, and I failed it. No, I did. Uh, it wasn't the original. It was the, practice. Like, the, 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 the dummy test, the practice mm-hmm. one. Okay. And didn't do too good on that one. So back in those days, you had to go to the library and pull out that big ASVAB book. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I did that. I did have a sense of commitment, so I did that and I studied for like a month, went back and I kicked it in the ass, but no problem.
1: So that, you know, the life that you were living in New York City, now I take it being from the East Coast, you went to Paris Island for boot camp. Can you talk to us about that culture shock? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How can I put that?
2: You know, everybody talks about the yellow footsteps when you Mm -hmm. get down there. I don't remember them as clearly, maybe because it's been 30 years. What I do remember is this huge individual, actually two of them, running up on that bus and screaming at a volume that I was not used to. I mean, and it was in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And these guys were like demons, just... Get off my bus. And you guys know the routine. Mm -hmm. Get off my bus. Mm -hmm. Get out of there. Now, and all that stuff. And it was like, okay, these guys are serious. Mm -hmm. So you went out there. You did what they did. Find a yellow footprint. And uh, you stood on that. But to back it up a little bit, in the East Coast, when you're going through MEPS, you go to MEPS in Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. Uh, All the services go there, and then they ship you out to your respective boot camps. So they had all of us there, and they were handing out hygiene kits uh, to everybody. So it was only a few of us going to Paris Island. So we were waiting for our hygiene kits. And it was like, yeah, you you guys don't get any. He's like, excuse us? He's like, no, the Marine Corps says your training starts now. (laughs) And we was like, "Uh, what does that got to do with anything? It's like, you get nothing. So (laughs) I remember that because all the other...
0: People were like laughing at us. <laughs> it's it's a so it's a big we, culture shock, I think, to anybody that that. Oh, it, it's it's not just a culture shock; it's a shock to your system. Yeah, yeah. yeah you you don't have to be uh, a Division One athlete to be uh, shocked. You don't have to be a nerd to be shocked. You can be anyone that shows up to Paris Island, and the way that they start you in the system and i'm and i I imagine they did the same or i'm sure worse when you went through versus when i went through i won't even act like you know i know but you know not letting you look outside the windows of the bus when you're driving onto the island you're you're basically blindfolded and you have to have your head down in between your legs as you get On the, you know, get to the bus and drive there because they say, we don't want you to know how to escape. When you decide, (laughs) (laughs) when you decide that you don't want to be here anymore, you're not going to know how to get out of here. And you're like, fucking shit. (laughs) Well, they didn't do
2: that to us. What they told us is if you try to escape,
0: we
1: will
0: yeah. Shoot. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, maybe this is, even, this is 1988. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe even maybe even just as bad. You know, like, <laughs> you're like, well, if you're gonna you shoot know, it me, was, it's like, well, oh, that sucks too. Well <laughs> what's
2: funny is, uh, we got there in the middle of the night, um, and stepping off of that bus, I've never been before or since as disorientated for three months in my entire life. <laughs> Didn't know where I was. Didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. People screaming at you, kicking you, hitting you in the back of the head, eating sand, eating sand flies. I mean, I could keep yeah. going,
0: but you just didn't know what the hell was going on. Just try not to fuck yeah. You. Yeah, that's, they, they do a great job with that. And, and no disrespect to any other service, but I, I know people that have gone through every other branch of the military. And you know, every Marine knows by far that the that boot camp is the hardest uh the marine corps boot camp is the hardest out of all of them um but yeah it's we're not here to talk about boot camp stories but but it is <laughs> it is unique and to see every everyone's different views on the impact that um, that shock had on you and i was a you know i was a cocky little shit when i went through and when you get there it's like oh boy I'm not saying shit to this dude. You know, like it's you you really learn your place really quickly, but the structure, the structure <laughs> of it is to break you into nothing and and build you into this machine that is kind of what we shape our lives to today. Uh which which kind of leads me to the next question I have for you and um in military life as a marine and and kind of how it shaped your future what you took out of um, training what you did in training what from day one to the day that you got your DD214 let's let's just talk about shaping a future it, it is what we are now and that's what we base our life on well
2: I think one of the biggest Excuse me, one of the main things that has stuck with me from the Marine Corps has got to be the structure of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's most militaries. The structure, you know, you got to understand the method to the madness. You know, the structure is there for a reason and for a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, after boot camp, I don't know how they did it with you guys, uh, with my son who's in right now. After boot camp, he came home for two weeks, went to SOI, and I don't think he got to come home after SOI. I went to boot camp, came home for two weeks. I went to uh, Fort Sill, or Fort Silly as we call it, out in Oklahoma, uh, for artillery training. I was a forward observer, 0800. And from there, I got to come home, and then I went to Virginia, right here, Little Creek, Uh, for Naval Gunfire School. I was uh, a Naval Gunfire Spotter, which my MOS was uh, 0861. And then from there, went out to Camp Pendleton, and that's where I joined uh, my unit. Mm -hmm. The Marine Corps, as most branches, but I think the Marine Corps really puts an appreciation and emphasis on structure, discipline, and tradition you know they those are the building blocks of the foundation of the marine corps you know people and i'm going to make a couple of movie references through the show but a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about the military and the marine corps especially but a lot of people think the military wants robots, do as you're told, when you're told, how you're told, X, Y, and Z. But as in that movie Full Metal Jacket, there's a great line in there. I think it's in Matthew Bodine, right? (laughs) Is that his name? It says Marine Corps does not want robots. They want killers. Not only do they want killers, they want you to kill, get up, and do it again the next day. That's the reality of it. And that reality usually doesn't hit a lot of guys and gals until they're drawing out to deploy and they're drawing out their ammo. And you get issued that body bag. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when it hit me. They give you this body bag. You know, it's like stick that in your ruck. It's like, okay, this shit is real.
1: So when you showed up to Pendleton, that was Anglico that you joined? So can you talk a little bit about the duty of Anglico? uh, For some of the- Let me
2: start out, uh, if you don't mind, at Fort Sill. Okay. So a certain Gunny Cologne had it out for me. I earned that one. And when I went to, he was finishing his tour there at the school and he was heading to Lejeune. He was telling me, when you come down to 10th Marines, I'll be waiting for you. (laughs) And Gunny Cologne was about five foot nothing. I'm sure he was shorter than me, but that man was a Johnny pump. He was rock hard, mean, Marine through and through. He was that guy that was like, you didn't want to meet him in a dark alley. He was just hard and mean. When I went to Virginia, uh, we was going to the Naval Gunfire School. There was a Marine there, had these shiny gold things on his chest.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He was like, what is that? He said, those are jump wings. He's like, ooh, you know, ooh, the at it. At the end of that course, he said, hey, anybody want to jump out of planes too? And me and my buddy Wright were like, we want. We don't want to see Gunny Cologne anymore. We raised our hands. <laughs> we asked because you know the dream sheet they give you? Mm-hmm. I put Okinawa, Okinawa, <laughs> Okinawa. Because I was, yeah. I did not want to go New York to-, <laughs> to Lejeune. <laughs> so, but he said, anybody want to jump out of planes? And we raised our hands. And next thing you know, we're out going out to Camp Pendleton, uh, Del Mar, out of Camp Del Mar. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Camp Pendleton. Uh, we were stationed in Camp Del Mar, right on the beach, beautiful. It was beautiful. Great spot. Unfortunately, I've heard they moved out to like Las Pogas or something like that, which sucks. But yeah, went to First Anglico, which is First Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. One of the weirdest units in the Marine Corps.
0: Well, I met uh, Brian and I were actually talking about it a little bit uh, before today's show started and and he was saying in, in eight years of service, he, he never really met anybody in Anglico. And I'd, I had met uh,
1: just— Great white buffalo. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. <laughs> and not by any, uh, any doing of my own. I had bumped into a few guys um, as I was on Camp Lejeune with Anglico out there. And I, I had to look it up to know what it actually even stood for. Um, just the acronym and i was I was curious to know and and I went through a a forward observing class you know for our our platoon that we were in I went through a class and I heard about it I was like, okay that's that makes sense, but you never really heard about the guys being anywhere like they were just uh, seemed like a little bit of an elite unit um which is cool That's it's an awesome secret <laughs> that the Marine Corps has. <laughs> Listen The the Marine Corps is
2: Funny that way First Anglo Anglicore in general Is a liaison unit That provides supporting arms US supporting arms To foreign allies In four years in the Marine Corps I think I did One op With another Marine Corps unit I've worked with We did a lot of work with uh, 82nd, 101st, Rangers, 25th Infantry, 10th Mountain. I've worked with the Venezuelan Hopi. I've worked with French Foreign Legion, uh, these Turkish dudes I can't remember, Rock Marines, I mean, (laughs) all these different countries that uh, we worked with. Anglicore is structured very differently. From your typical Marine Corps unit. Our squad level is called FIC Fire power control team. It's anywhere from five to seven guys. And that's your line. Those are your line guys. They're going to be attached to a line company. And they're the guys that are in the shit. After that is called your SALT. Right? They're your battalion level guys. Mm-hmm. Or... They're gonna be attached to Battalion Commander. I hope I remember this right. Battalion commander, he's gonna use those assets best possible. After that is your brigade level and there to the next level up. So then that's the organization of it. And it's different. It's weird. But
1: it is what it is. So did you, you deployed out of that? How soon did you deploy after you showed up to your unit?
2: Oh, no, I got there in eighty eight and okay. we didn't deploy to uh Ninety, mm-hmm. and uh, I I remember that was that was fun. Came knocking at the door in the middle of the night, waking everybody up. <laughs> Happened that fast, man.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. well, we we have um, we we talk a lot, and we're kind of I wouldn't say dragging. I wish this show could go on for like eight hours, but um, I want to talk a little bit about the workups that you did um, before we jump into kind of our. What we're really here to talk about, which is transitioning, because a lot of uh, a lot of people that we have on the show we talk workups. Uh, Brian and I had some some awesome workups, and we went to some awesome uh, training events, different army bases, marine bases all across the United States. Um, but we don't have a lot of experience with guys in Desert Storm, and we kind of wanted to know. In relation to the jump start of Desert Storm, Desert Shield, what was your workup uh, based on, and how was it structured uh, in reference to deploying to combat? We didn't do no damn workup, <laughs> so you should have stopped me before, <laughs> before I
1: said that whole. No, you was in the,
2: you was in the flow, so. Remember when I went in in 1988, there was not a whole lot going on. Uh, Beirut was before that, then you had Grenada and Panama. There was not a whole lot going on uh, that, leaded, that required a large scale deployment. So we did our regular trainings with jumps and humps, uh, working with foreign units, deployed to Venezuela, uh, you know, Korea, and other places. We did our regular training. And I remember being in the duty room, watching the news that uh, Iraq invaded, invaded Kuwait. Everybody's like, oh, "Look at that shit!" And everybody's like, "We don't give a shit." I think a week later, I forgot his name. This uh, duty sergeant was on. In was middle of the night. Came banging on our hatches. Get up, grab your shit. Get up to the CP. He's like, "What the fuck do you want?" He's like, "No, this is the balloon just went up. Grab your shit. Get up to the CP." and we went up there we drew our weapons got all loaded up and everything and then we sat around and wait and I think after that I think it was um two or three days went down to uh where the 82nd airborne is and we got attached to them and this is where it gets fun so we get attached to them they're doing their thing we're trying to figure out what we're supposed what we're supposed to we're supposed to be with we had us, they had us go to it like a track football field. Commander came out, so I told him we had a pep rally. They did the wave and everything. <laughs> we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Thinking back, I understand it. You want to get you guys ready. You, you know, you got to think about what you're about to go do. You want to get that motivation going, everything. But at the time, we were like these fucking assholes. What the fuck are you doing? Show us the target. We'll take it down. It was hilarious to us. Thinking back, I understand what that commander was doing now. He was getting his guys ready to go across that line. Right. But it was just funny to us. After that, we flew over. We sweated our balls off for a while. And then they ran us up on the line. There was no workup because at that time, when you guys went in, if I'm right... It's been going on for a little bit, so units were regularly working up, working up for deployments. With us, it was a knock on the hatch, grab your shit, and let's go.
1: Yeah, that kind of immediate deployment, we definitely didn't go through. I mean, I joined in two thousand and five, and by that time, you know, just a, a, a routine workup that that you go through. There's training blocks, and you, you hit the wickets, and then you then you deploy, and you're evaluated before you go. So it's, 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 it's awesome to hear mm-hmm. a different generation, you know, the first generation sandbox warrior yeah. tell, you know, how you got your kickoff into the game, you know? Yeah. It was interesting. And, and uh, we're definitely blessed to have, you know, the guys that, that ran us through those workups and, and, and can give us a little bit of a heads up of, of what we're going to do. So, you know, the, While you're on the line, you know, like what you were saying about in in um, Kuwait, what uh, can you can you share a little bit about kind of what was going through your head at that point, or um,
2: when we touched down and that rear hatch opened up and the heat mm -hmm. just engulfed you. I mean, we get full combat load, you know. Everything in your pack, it was ridiculous. Now he hit you off that black top. Holy crap. That's it was, it was, I still think a couple of my organs got fried. Yeah. But uh <laughs> after that we hung around for a while. You notice you can see that everybody was still figuring out what to do. Not as far as the units concerned, but as far as the higher-ups, the politicians and everybody in charge. A lot of politics involved with that, cultures, a lot of things involved in that, where you're allowed to go, what you're allowed to say, how you're allowed to behave. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of guys uh, got attached to us who were Vietnam guys that they called up medics. And they would tell us the total difference culturally because remember when you go into another country You have to deal with them culturally Yep They were in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s And that was a free fall We were in Saudi Arabia In the 80s Which, no That stuff didn't go on You had to be very careful How you walked, how you talked How you ate What you said, who you looked at I mean, it was really, really strict A lot, a lot of Regulations and restrictions, so it made it when they took us and drove us up on the line. It was actually great just to get out of the rear.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting uh, way to look at it. Getting out from the rear and getting away from the culture, um, and that kind of ties into everything that we talk about in reference to getting out of the military and exiting and kind of going back to the rear because essentially that's what you're doing in uh, you're doing it in combat you're doing it when you you know we we went I remember when we went through Kuwait and experienced that Jesus Christ heat that just I mean it'll shut you down it's it's like none other Um, but like you said, adjusting to the cultural difference and having to be on, on watch for everything you do, that completely correlates with what we're talking about with transitioning from active duty to the civilian world. Just the, just the verbal, uh, aspect of transitioning is very tough. When you get to a new job, you get out of the military, you can't even talk the same way in the United States in reference to the way you talked in the military. And I think it's interesting that you brought that up since that's exactly what we're trying to get, you know, get across to people is the transition phase. Um, and I guess my my question to you would be, um, how could you take the transitioning from the rear, as you put it, to the front line um how could you reference that to getting out of the military and transitioning back to the civilian the civilian population that we live in now?
2: Like I was telling your partner here, I like listening to your guys' show because I hear the evolution of military terminology as it goes, you know, all the stupid words that we use. Um when I was in, we had a term called Remp.
0: I don't really remember Rimps. Well, it's rear echelon, motherfucker. Exactly, that's why I
2: never knew. So we didn't. We didn't have Fobs. Uh, that came later when your guys started going over there. You know, when we rolled up on the line, uh, fox We went to a place we called <laughs> it. Fobs. We had fox holes. No, we, 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 we didn't. We actually did. We dug those fox holes, and there's hard clay down there. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I can tell you. And uh, we went to a place that we called the Camp Speed Bump because we were stopping nothing. If they would have rolled down on us, it was a couple of one three one one three tracks <laughs> and us doing the hill, bubbly hillbillies in a Humvee. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. I mean, we, really, we would have gave them hell, but we wasn't stopping you know, a division of T-72 tanks. Yeah. It was not happening.
0: Um, Until the naval gunfire shows up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, t- 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 yeah. They never
2: go. Listen, it's nice to have some five inch and sixteen inch offshore, some one hundred fives in the rear, and some 810s okay over eight tens overhead. Yeah, love those okay. guys. Love those guys. Um, but so the term rare rear, rear echelon motherfucker. Yes, it's a derogatory term. Yes, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Welcome to, to the show. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> now, <clears throat> this is, this is uh, a little left real quick. When you join the military when you join the military depending on the job that you get whether you're in combat arms, and combat arms as you guys know is infantry artillery, tanks right. so on and so forth whether you're in a support role Paul Rose, the supply, a cook, or S1 shops, right? Men and I don't begrudge those guys, I don't dislike them. You know, I don't have any, I don't wake up in the morning, damn, I hate them. No, they have a very important job to do, also. But you're not combat arms, yeah. You know, that is just the truth. Not saying you're not a Marine, you're not a sailor, you're not a soldier, or you're not an airman, that's not what I'm saying. But there is a difference because when we deploy and I go up on the line, you stay behind. Right. right. Coming back from the line to the rear, the attitudes or... Yeah, the attitudes... You can tell who's been up on the line and who hasn't. Listen, we might have to do a show, too, just so I could tell you some of the nonsense that was going on that I missed out on while I was up on the line. I'm still mad about it to this day, 30 <laughs> years later. But you can tell who was up on the line and who wasn't. It's weird because to your point of the transition... When you come back off the line and you're going into the rear where you know, they're sleeping in a bed, there's a child hall, there's daily formations and inspections and all the stuff that you're not doing in the field. Yeah, You're not doing that. There's an adjustment, a readjustment to that, that you gotta you know get through to get back in line, to use that term. Right. And it's similar to getting out of the military Back, you know, into the civilian world, you're coming out of the field to use that term when you're in the military, coming to the rear, coming to garrison, and you got to deal with the garrison bullshit. Yep. And it's not easy because you guys have deployed, you guys have been on the line, you guys have crossed that line. One thing that people don't understand is some of the things that you can bring back everybody talks about oh he went to war he could snap and kill somebody or or he's beating his wife or he's kicking the dog that's not the shit that you deal with the shit that you deal with when you come back is trying to fit in
1: Mm -hmm.
2: trying not to be you know, uh, scoped out as different. You just want to belong. The problem is that now you're surrounded by a bunch of goddamn shit bags, and it drives you up the damn wall. Yeah. And for those who don't know what a shit bag is, I'm sure one of these fine gentlemen will let you know. <laughs> don't be one of them. Yeah. When you're coming back, and especially a marine who's been in combat, all soldiers been in combat. One of the things. Mm-hmm. That many years later, I realized that I brought back. And as I look across this table to this young man's eyes, I see the same shit. The intensity that you bring back from that shit is ridiculous. And it doesn't fit anywhere out here. I would walk into a room and turn it on its head and not know it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just the intensity that I carried around with me. All the time, that intensity is off the scales, off the charts, and you don't realize it as the individual. And when other people point it out to you, you're like, "You want to get out of my face, please." You know, remember the DIs had their hat, or this is uh, this is my this is my zone, the, your arms reach, you know. You're in my AO, please remove yourself before I do. Something like that, that intensity, that shit is heavy. That shit is really heavy and you carry it around. You don't realize it. And then when people are telling you, yo, relax, calm down, chill out. I am fucking relaxed. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Matter of fact, not only am I relaxed, why are you asking? None of your business. Yeah. You know, but this is the intensity. That intensity. If you've never been out on a squad patrol, don't act like you've been out on a squad patrol. You know, yeah. and like I said, I don't begrudge any Marine or any other servicemen their duty, their job, their role, their responsibility. You, you enlisted, you went in, you did the job was assigned to you, you got your honorable, you went home. Kudos, a lot of respect to you because a lot of people didn't do that. But that individual who crossed the line, who was on that patrol, who was in that firefight, who lost a buddy, who killed somebody, some of the things that they bring back, it makes it harder for them to transition and readjust back into society because they don't realize they carried some stuff back with them. And I don't mean PTSD. I'm not talking. That's a whole different thing. That's a mental issue. I'm talking about just some of the characteristics that you developed while you were there. You brought that back with you because you know, kept you safe, kept you alive, made you function. Nothing wrong with me. The problem is you, <laughs> you know. And and this is what I mean as far when you, you know. Your support roles versus your combat arms roles. When you come back off the line, and you gotta you know, two days, a week before you go back out on patrol, back out to your paws, you can tell, who's who, who. He's been in the rear, sitting there, they're doing their job. You know, you want your beans, you're your your band-aids. But you can tell who's who. That intensity, the rawness, the skittishness sometimes you get. You see, notice these individuals, you know. And if you've ever seen a Marine load out, go out on that first patrol. And then watch them as they load out go on that second patrol you see things you know you see things different <laughs> yeah.
1: me and micah talked about that in one of our earlier episodes of <laughs> the being the new guy that was our new guy episode we were yeah that about, we're yeah the, the new guy in combat you got enough bullets to take down whatever you think you're gonna assault something and you know by the end of the deployment you have everything scaled down to a water bottle in your pocket just just <laughs> enough bullets to get you by yeah. <laughs> and you know, you got a little bit of salt on your shoulders. Oh man,
0: those those camis <laughs> I mean, are standing up on their different. own, motherfuckers. That's <laughs> listen.
2: I have taken off camis and stood them in a the corner, and I think they're still yeah.
0: there. Yeah, those. Are, that's that like ghost shit, man. That's real shit. Yeah. You've never yeah. you've never been out there, man. If you if you haven't experienced that, that's a that's some interesting stuff to. You, I kind of I feel like I blacked out for a second listening to you talk about it. It's like you forget about that shit sometimes and how, you know, I'm very unbiased about it too, as, as, as we all are. And we all feel the need to talk about the difference between combat arms MOSs and, and, and the vice versa. And, you know, I, I can tell you some of my best buds were Cooks. You know, oh, yeah. some of my best. Those are some hard charges, A, and some of my best buds <laughs> were supply guys because you know we we had to, um, we had to get what we needed, we had to be outfitted and ready for for what we were going to do, and you know when you need that parasol barrel for that that 249 and and the uh and the armorer only has one but you bring him some cool shit you know you get the cool (laughs) shit in return and and sometimes it's it's funny just even talking about it with a guy that was uh like yourself on in a different generation you know um
2: the good thing or the cool thing that i remember is when you're drawing ammo and supplies and all that stuff you can tell the individuals who really give a shit that you're out there. Yeah. yeah. You can tell, like, they're they trying to get you everything they can get you. Mm-hmm. Because they know what you're going out there to do. They know the risk you're going to take. You know, and when you draw that last piece of gear and you look at each other in the eye, he's like, yo, be safe out there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you can tell when that person means it. Versus I ran to a couple individuals who like, they didn't give a shit. And you know what? That's just life.
1: Yeah. So, you know, after, after these deployments, you're coming home and you've got salty camis. You've got all of these, um, you know, emotions, your intensity, and it's time to, you make the decision to get out. Can you talk to us a little bit about that decision-making process to get out of the Marine Corps and get out of Angaco? and uh, rejoin the civilian side. It was stupid, like a lot of decisions I've made since then.
2: Word of advice to anybody in the military, regardless of the branch, if you're going to get out, do not make a decision to get out of the military or reenlist emotionally. Yep. Don't do that. One of your podcasts, I can't remember which one it was, You said something that is so important. If you do choose to get out, have a plan, have a plan. That is one of the biggest pieces of advice that I can say. When I decided to get out, I did it on an emotional basis. It was still wrong decision to this day. And I had no plan. I thought I knew everything, I was a combat vet, I was hard charger, fuck you, can't tell me shit. We were the first military to see combat on a large scale since Vietnam, and we fucking won, you can't tell me shit. That was the attitude, wrong attitude, once I did get out. I don't know if they have the tap classes now mm-hmm. right tap. yeah yes. um they had something similar to that to that when I got out and what it was um you they took us to main side this large auditorium set us down I had a guy from the VA there said yeah I got a limp I got hundred percent uh there's a book big ass book they had. Look at your MOS, and that's a job that you can do on the outside. Worst book ever. That was it. It was one afternoon, one morning. That was the extent of any pre-discharge preparedness that the Marine Corps had at the time. So once I got out, I was, at that time, uh, living with my First daughter's mother And This shit show That that turned out to be Mainly my fault Because Nobody Gave us any clue To what we were dealing with Or could deal with Everybody was caught up in the fact that it was A short Good Win. That's what it was. Big deployment, a lot of pictures, generals got medals, few, few few people died, and we won. Happy parades, jubilation, all of that shit. Please don't ask us anything else. The problem with that is, and I like to use the compare com- excuse me comparison of the Vietnam generation as everybody knows the story, the shit that they dealt with, when they came back, we were the exact opposite. The similarity comes in this point. They didn't get any help. Or the help they got was shit poor. And then they went and, you know, went into the background. We came home to... All this rejoicing, this jubilation, this celebration. It was amazing. I was like, oh, shit. And when we did ask certain questions, they were like, why are you rocking the boat? Why are you asking questions? What's wrong with you? You should be happy. You got all your parts. You guys won. We look great. Why are you asking questions? What is wrong with you? How could anything be wrong with you? And that was the beginning of a trip down a rabbit hole that goes really deep. Because since everybody had that mentality of, well, we went over there, we did good. And it looked good. We did it in style. We had a bunch of new toys. Stealth bomber. You know, high tech. It was the, they called it the video war. So you should be fine, go live your life. The problem is, is that nobody took any interest in integrating into civilian society, the readjustment process, what it actually is, how long it could actually be and how it varies from individual to individual, and that would be a huge undertaking for anybody that would even try. You know, U.S. military, is a couple of million strong. It'd be hard, not impossible, but hard to write up a one-size-fits-all, you know, discharge exiting program. People forget the military is a machine. They're going to use you as much as they can. When they're done with you, they're done with you. And then the rows that meet is the individual getting out of the military and the civilian family and friends back home. And also, one of your podcasts, you was talking about having that plan. Coming back home And Being picky on who you choose To deal with That's a big thing Because As I was speaking with you earlier A lot of people join the military at a young age They go in there and They realize there's something bigger Than high school football And they see this machine In action and it's a it's all inspiring. When you see a battalion work up and deploy, join weapons. I mean, I was tip of the spear of an armored division, armored invasion. Never thought that one would happen. That wasn't on my list. <laughs> you know, in a home V like the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, and you see this thing move, this this beast move out across the countryside and it goes on forever. And these guys is armed to the teeth and we're bringing death and destruction with us. Yeah. Yeah. You come home and like you guys were talking about the buddies, your battle buddy, we didn't use that term, but I think it's a good term. Your support system, your support circle your family is your immediate support structure. The issue is that as is, you don't know what that individual's family like. They could be supportive. They could be structured, grounded, well-rounded. Help them transition. It could still be, you know, issues, but they can help. Or he could be walking into a shit show. Yeah, you don't know. Or he could be In a marriage that's struggling You know There's so many different factors That can happen to Affect an individual's Readjustment and transitioning I think the thing that sucks the worst Is If you don't have a battle buddy You're pretty much at it alone Like I was stationed in Camp Pendleton. When I got out, I stood in California for a couple years and I came back to New York. And I don't know if you guys have had this problem. I'm going to guess safely that you have. The language barrier that you have, you don't expect it. It's just, you know. The military terminology, phonetic alphabet, 24-hour clock, and other terms that you use for a significant part of your former life in very harrowing situations with individuals that you would walk through hell and back for. Now is like speaking Greek to people who you don't hate them. You, know, you do love them. You care about them. But they can't understand what you're saying And the reality is You gotta remember that they didn't enlist You did Mm -hmm. They didn't go to boot camp You did They didn't sit there and have to go through all the nonsense That you did They were dealing with their own lives The problem is that we come out And We forget That they don't gotta adjust to us We have to adjust to them
1: that responsibility is so huge and you know, we've discussed it multiple times on the show of, 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 of us taking responsibility for that transition piece and, and my struggles interest in, in transitioning to, you know, the, the civilian life. I mean, I failed time and time again to take on that responsibility and take responsibility mm-hmm. for my actions and take responsibility for what I was saying to people and how I was talking and how I was behaving. And, and that's, That's one of the biggest things on the show is we're trying to get all of these examples from people and from their own transition and then kind of overlay it with ours and saying, oh, wow, okay, so I'm not on an island. I'm not a man on an island all by myself. I'm not the only one that goes through this struggle. And like what you were saying before the show, there's all these nuances to transitioning there's 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 no there's no one that's the same there's no one size fits all there's no steps and taps class that act, can actually really dig into the finer details and 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 really the whole reason that that me and micah got into podcasting was because of listening to other podcasters that were military guys and we were taking what they were saying and the stories that they told and we're overlaying them and like oh wow this is this is spot on and 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 we're kind of just adding to that pile with our own little twist of, of, of talking to people such as yourself and digging into, you know, what they have to say and the stories that that they give. And what we're hoping to do is to just provide that outlet of being able to listen, you know, by yourself in your headphones in the car or in the gym and say, holy shit, you know, Richard had this situation oh, that that mirrors my own. And 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 this is what he did. Oh, shit, maybe I don't want to do that. Or, hey, you know, it, it, maybe that mistake led him here, but this is how he recovered. This is how he bounced back. And he, if, if he can do it, well, fuck, I can too. And...
2: The problem with that is... the It's so different for everybody. And, no, what you guys said is bottom. I and, listen, I, I like your podcasting. It's funny that you say by yourself that word because you said something, I don't know which one of you guys said in one of your previous podcasts, is being comfortable in your own head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one of you guys said that. When you get out and you're transitioning, for me, being comfortable in my own head was among the biggest challenges because my head was full of nonsense let me take that back it was full of things that did not fit in my current environment nobody needed an op nobody was looking for supporting arms nobody was looking for an airstrike i couldn't understand how nobody could get what the hell I was trying to convey. The message that I was trying to get across and my only message was this let's all get home alive.
0: Well you, you you're hitting the nail repeatedly on the head with every context, with every ounce of your emotion. It's, it's all spot on. And what Brian has, has said just before about what we're trying to do, making that overlay and tying in little bits and pieces to your situation or her situation. And we had a, uh, an amazing woman... Come on to the show. Uh, on episode fourteen, uh, Sabrina, and her story is is an amazing story, and we hope hopefully we can have her back on again. Uh, hopefully we can have everyone back on again, but um, her her story is incredible because she was in a. a Basically a combat arms MOS, but a man's a man's uh, a world. And she she was able to convey to us how her mindset changed to be in that position and then her transition out and what she's doing now. And we say it time and time and time again that we're not trying to tell people what to do. We're trying to give examples of what not to do. And it's fucking hilarious It's you know, fucking I, hilarious hearing it. I love that I love that uh, that
2: premise because uh, when I got back to New York, trying to fit in, one of the biggest mistakes that I did was to really fake being what everybody else
0: considered normal in order to be accepted and to fit in yeah smiling when you show up to work having you know having a a good morning hello how are you doing attitude when you show up to work and 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 acting like everything's fine and everything is fine We, we both have got that and i interrupted you a little bit i apologize but that's no, okay. We, I I got a and I I talked about it in one of our first episodes. I got a, a bad performance review, at my at my <laughs> last job. Uh, my yeah, my previous job. I worked there for for seven years in the uh, the welding industry. And my boss said, I was I was somewhat fresh out of the military, like a, maybe a year year and a half, which is still pretty fresh and. I was uh I was working in this position and in our hours were six to two thirty. Naturally you get there five thirty, five forty-five in the morning and you're hurt and you're beat up, you're probably still drunk from the night prior, you're just groggy, you're you just don't want to fucking be there, but you're there because it's your job, right? And you show up and it's five thirty in the morning and no one wants to talk and say, Well, hello, good morning, how are you doing at five thirty in the morning? And I just assumed that was the situation. And I was up for a I was up for a raise and a, a six month review. And after the six month rev- after the review, I I did not get the raise, and the review did not go as I thought it was going to. And I asked my boss, like like the asshole that I am, like, "Well, <laughs> I'm obviously not getting a raise after this." after this performance review and he's like no you're not you know and i was like well can you tell me what i did wrong can you can you tell me what the problem is and he's and he he, he looks at me and and not exactly word for word but in a nutshell this is what he says he says Micah, you walk in here like a brick shit house you walk in here ready to go all the time there's no off there's no relaxing. You can't just talk to you. And you show up at 5 30, 5 45 in the morning. You don't say anything to anyone for hours. And at the time in i I don't even remember when this was, maybe 2012, 2013. At the time there had been a, a military service member that had shot up a bunch of cops. In town,
2: what I believe this, this is what
0: 2013, this? if I'm not mistaken. I could be off on the years, and and I apologize if anyone is was actually part of that. Um, but but anyways, <laughs> there there had been some seriousness about military vets that had taken guns and had shot someone, right? And my boss is sitting here saying we don't know if you're going to be the next to do that to us because <laughs> of your attitude. And it was just such an eye-opening event. And and I told him, I was like, well, how was I ever supposed to know that this bothered y'all? It's like, well, we just didn't want to even tell you. We were terrified to even say anything to you. And just that that, like you said, that constant a hundred miles an hour attitude, that seriousness that you bring to the table in everything you do, that alone is one of the toughest things, in my opinion, about transitioning.
2: Well, what, what you said was even, was, is just as important is that you don't even know. Yeah. You don't realize that. Now, your situation was in a work environment. Flip it, now put it in a home environment. Yeah. You know, you're in your house. When I got back from California to New York, I went back to my mother's house. Trying to, you know, that was a home base that I could go and try to establish myself and move on from there. I don't know when this happened. But I became You ever see the Vietnam Those old movies With the crazy uncle Hey you Don't worry about him Went to Vietnam Yeah I don't know when it happened But I became that guy And Looking back now I could pick certain spots out Where My Trying to transition Back Faking it Trying to fit in trying to find the camaraderie that I had with my unit because that's one thing a lot of people that's one of the nuances nuances excuse me that a lot of people don't understand if you're in a grunt unit or you're in a tight unit squad a unit like an ankle right across from us was force was our first force you know working small units small teams you have to depend on each other on a different level. When you take that squad and break out to five teams, you go out through your thing, you have to depend on each other on a different level. When you leave the military going back to the civilian world, you look for that. You need that. It's hard to function without that. It was for me. And I mean, I got great friends that Look at me sideways now Because of some of the dumb shit that I've done They Don't understand why I did what I did Years later It's just that It's just crazy And you went to war and that's it That's The easiest way for them To comprehend to themselves my actions and my behavior. Cause me trying to explain it to them for them to comprehend just never worked. It just never did. And my family, especially my mother, who uh, English is not very good, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Trying to explain to her, I mean, to explain war to somebody of any language They can get the overall concept To try to Put across an individual experience mm-hmm. With details And nuances It's a little different It's a little different And then And I keep going back to this, this Post-deployment, post-military thing That everybody Believes That What's your problem? What's yeah, your, what's your problem? There are a lot of wrong expectations and misconceptions of from the civilian side of military people once they get out. They think you get a check every month for your life in the military. Uh, they think you have the secrets to Area 52. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I'm pretty sure you guys have had these conversations. Can you do this? Have you seen that? It's like, what are you watching? (laughs) When I got out and I got back to New York, trying to find a job was really difficult. Trying to translate my skills to somebody. (laughs) Was well, not easy. Like I said, nobody needed an airstrike. Nobody needed naval gunfire. Nobody needed nan- land, nav, or all those skills that I've honed for the last six years. Because I did four active, two reserves. I honed those skills. I'm calling all kinds of supporting arms. What do you need? Where do you need it? And those intangibles that they would say, you know, use your intangibles. as In the military, you got those intangibles. They just didn't come across because these employers, what skills do you have to bring to my company? How how are you an asset to my company? Mm-hmm. That was difficult because to use another movie reference, remember uh, Rambo First Blood? Mm-hmm. I love referencing most... Rambo to the military. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the best line out of that movie was, I was flying helicopters in charge of million dollar equipment, and all this, that, and the other. And now I can't find a job in a goddamn car wash. Yeah. That line hit me like never before once I got out. It was real to me. Mm-hmm. That was my life it was like. What are you talking about? I'm in charge of million dollar equipment in charge of top secret, you know, uh, uh, KY equipment, all of that stuff. And secret clearance, all of that stuff and. Nothing. And that's I think I think that's one of the hardest things, because until that point, when you go into the military, usually going young. That's the height of your achievement for a lot of people for the rest of your life, especially if you do all that high-speed, low-drag stuff.
0: Yeah.
2: I'm Listen, n- nobody's dropping me out of a Huey in downtown Manhattan. I'd like to do it, <laughs> <laughs> but nobody's doing it. And it was hard for me to understand how you don't see these valuable skills that I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I got into a couple of arguments with a couple of interviews. I was like, you're blind. You don't fucking see it. How the? F- what the? You're fuck? definitely not hired now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely was a hired now. And I'm gonna say this, and I don't care who does not like this. I was born and raised in New York City. Love my town. Drives me crazy. But they a are not a military town. They're not. On the surface, they are, and you have many people who from the service. That are there. And family members. That they support and love the military and F S. were as a whole. Negative. And I don't care who you put in my face. It can be the governor. It can be the mayor. It can be anybody. You're not. There's a lot of services and everything. But they're not. A military. Town. City. Not like a Pennsylvania or Houston or other cities. Mm-hmm.
1: So these, <clears throat> when you're, you're, so you're in New York City trying to find a job. The job is not finding you. <laughs> is this when you push towards, is this what drove you to work for the VA? To oh, no, no, get to no, no, the, no. Okay.
2: So what happened is I did find a job. I, My brother, mm-hmm. Kev, love you, Got me into the audio field. And I worked there for several years. It was good, hard work, but it was good work. Made decent money. But what happened from there is... And I'm going to touch a little bit on mental health here. You don't know what's going to manifest and when it's going to manifest. I was struggling with... Just fitting in And I was taking on behaviors Of people that I was around Instead of trying to get them to take on my behaviors I tried that Didn't work Caused more problems than it solved So you start taking on Other behaviors of the environment that you're in Just to fit in Because remember I've been gone Seven years As much as things stay the same A lot of things have changed A lot of people moved on People there, it's a whole new crew of dudes. So you' trying to fit in, and I laugh now. I can laugh now at it a little bit. Um, whenever aircraft from LaGuardia or JFK or New York will fly over, it made me jump. Made me startle, and you know they used to laugh me. It's like it's just a plane. I get. At first, when it first started, I used to try to explain to them, but it's not their fault. It fell on not deaf ears, but not ears that could comprehend what I was trying to get across. And then the nightmare started The hyper-awareness, the hyper-alertness was there But when the nightmare started It was a different thing When When the scariest part of your day Is walking to your rack Cause you know the fight you're about to get into is all out balls to the wall And that's the only way I could describe it That shit sucks So What I did In my genius thinking Was well Don't need to sleep Started drinking no, no, First started with the drinking But that didn't help All the time, or not as much as I wanted it to, because once you pass out, you pass out. But you know, you can still have a nightmare. You still go have dreams and some function going on. So I was smarter than that. I'm going to do cocaine, so I can stay up and not go to sleep. What a freaking genius! I thought I was, I wasn't really a partier at this time. I did party with some people, but it was more like, I don't have to go to sleep. And I think of the, the thinking of that. I smoked my weed, I drunk my beers, did my alcohol. But at the end of the night, I don't care how drunk I got, how high I got off weed, walking to my rack was that slow walk to cross the line. Every freaking night. That shit got ridiculous. To the point that, um, I don't know, they don't do that anymore on TV when the national anthem and the flag used to come on at night and then it'd be shh. My mother has called me more than once watching that screen. Just not to go to bed, not to go to sleep. And I couldn't figure it out. It's like, yo, what the fuck is wrong with me? You know, I'm functioning, I'm going to work, trying to save up, trying to do things, trying to get my own place. What is going on with me? So the cocaine spiraled into crack cocaine because that kept me up longer. And it was about Maybe about a 10 year run Mm -hmm. from the weed. I mean, the whole progression there. That, and it's funny because if you're drinking or smoking weed or whatever drug you're doing or substance, and you do it with other people for that, you know, that party atmosphere or whatever it is, I didn't do that i mean, not saying that that never happened, it did, but I did it by myself, I did it to stay awake, I did it not to go to sleep. Anybody out there who has their own opinion, hey, that's your business, I don't give a shit. I do know this, that I remember at times being up, I think my longest was four days. Straight, going to work. Going to work until I can pass out to the point that there's barely any function, you know, in the brain housing group there. And then I would get up and I'd do it all over again. Every now and then when I would pass out and the next day I'd go to bed if nothing happened, I'm like, oh, okay. I think I got something here. The minute something happened, I'd go back to my routine. The problem with that was that I didn't, I didn't use the support system I had in place because I had one. Mm-hmm. You no, know, my family wasn't the Bundys. I mean, not the Bundys, the Bradys. <laughs> they were more like the Bundys, <laughs> well, but they were there there was a support system there i felt that they couldn't help me because of my of what i thought was their failure to comprehend what i was trying to convey to them Mm -hmm. as far as my experience and how it's manifesting now
0: ain't that the fucking truth
2: the thing with that is is that i caused them more hurt and pain With the bullshit that I was doing And you know that's stuff you don't see When you're in the middle of addiction no. Now this is where I gotta give kudos to the VA And I'm gonna get to the VA part I got deep into the addiction Where I wasn't working anymore And it was just a depression It was A Deep rut. I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. My thing was, I had all my limbs. I didn't get a purple pump or nickel. We won. What am I, and who am I to complain about anything? And then when I was trying to recover and get out of that shit, Went to the VA hospital Now The VA hospital is a You ever see that uh, Cartoon The Beatles yellow submarine Mm -hmm. You ever see that thing with those strange creatures in there Mm -hmm. That's the VA VA is a strange creature With a good heart And a even a bit of weird brain housing group The way they function And it's just It's just difficult to comprehend But there's a lot of people in there Who actually give a shit you just the thing is You got to run into them So the VA has substance abuse programs They got inpatient They got outpatient So I went into the inpatient one there they're in Brooklyn 15th floor Two hundred day program I got out I was good for a week, had one nightmare, and bitched up and went right back to the bullshit. A year late, no, five years later, I went back to the 15th floor in Brooklyn the same day I got discharged, which is ironic. From there, I did what they call continuing treatment. Instead of, because I didn't want to repeat the same mistakes I did last time. I went from there, I went up to Montrose, mm-hmm. it's up in the Hudson Valley, beautiful place. And they had continuing treatment, I went there. And then from where there, I went to the PTSD unit. And once I got out of there, since then I've been pretty, pretty, pretty good. You have I've had my slips. I think two years after that, but I've been good for a long time now. Which I'm proud to say. I don't do the counting days. You know how people do count days. Yeah. I don't count days. Um, the funny thing is, the first time I went into the substance abuse program, and. Uh, I was clean for the first day or two and I couldn't sleep and I was having nightmares again. And um, the guy gave me. What is that thing they like to give out that, that prescription? I'm not tremathol. Sure uh, like
0: I like that. It's supposed like to be a ambient. sleep. Med-
2: no, but the ambient is a controlled substance. This other one is not a controlled substance. Oh. Um. I'm. Anyway whatever. They gave me that And it was to help me sleep Couldn't sleep I could not sleep I couldn't sleep I wouldn't sleep So I talked to the dude I said listen I don't know the how you guys are doing But you gotta give me something to sleep But I don't want to dream I don't want no dreams He seen the condition I was in I was frazzled. I was not doing good. And this is just because fighting the sleep thing. He said, dude, explain to me what's going on. And then I told him about the nightmares and the issue with sleeping. It was the sleeping. He said, oh, you might be dealing with PTSD. I was like, no, impossible. This, I could not justify any reason to even be dealing with that type of condition. Because we won. We won. We have parades. You know. How could I have any reason. To complain or have a condition like that. What I didn't know. Was the level of guilt that I was dealing with at the time was the level of guilt that I was dealing with at the time was manifesting in a weird way. So when I got out of there, like I said, that was the first time that I went back and I went to continuing treatment. I went up to the PTSD unit. There I had a breakdown. That place was horrible. Dr. Green, they were giving me, oh my God, what was that medication? That's the most sedate place I've ever been in my life. Good unit, good working people. I mean, none I can't remember the drug they were giving me, but I had a breakdown. Couldn't take it. I broke out of there and went into town and I got high with some people. I was so depressed on the way back. That I tried to step in front of a truck. Don't tell too many people that one. The fucking truck. Fucking asshole. Seen me and swerved. (laughs) Come on, guy. You have one job. I made it all the way back. They put me in a. Lockdown. Psych ward. Observation. Unit. Where... Uh, They observed me for the next 48 hours, something like that. From there, I went to the lockdown unit for another two, three weeks. Little did I know that would not be the last lockdown unit that I would be in. So when I got back home, I didn't understand why my family was happy to see me. And that I was okay, at least for the most part. I didn't didn't understand how to receive that. That wasn't in the training manual. It wasn't part of the SOP. After a few years, I said, I got to get out of this environment and make a new go at it. So I came out to Pennsylvania right here Beautiful Poconos With my two brat ass kids Loved them And I did the single father thing For a while I was working at the time for myself I was doing street vending I going in the weekends You know I was making money but that me was killing me And plus being a single father Is hard on the kids when you're trying to be there to set certain examples, insert, and create stability. So one night I'm sitting at my table, I'm on my computer, I'm just poking around, trying to figure things out. And I get this email. To this day, I don't know where the hell I got this email from. But it was for a position called Peer Support Specialist in the VA. Never heard about it. I've been dealing with the VA on and all for years now. Open it up and I'm reading it. And if you guys are not at this point, you might be you when you're on one side of the table in a therapy session long enough for so many years. <laughs> <laughs> you learn a lot. Yeah. You learn a lot, especially if you got a good therapist. Cause it's like uh And I read the position description. I was like, oh, I could do all of that. Key factors were. And for those of you who who do not know what a peer specialist is, it is somebody whose lived experience. Can help others going through whatever they're going through, make it through the other side, whether it's mental health or substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So I applied for the job. And somehow I got hired I still (laughs) know How I got hired Uh, At first I was working out In East Orange From Here to East Orange And um, What's the other one? In Jersey The other V hospital I'm losing it right now I was going there for training Then I was able to pick up That same position down here In Allentown in the Lehigh Valley. And then I went there. And I started work I was started working there. Now this part of transitioning is even crazier. Because here I am, veteran, combat veteran, working for VA. My first thought is I'm gonna save all the veterans. I'm gonna save all of y'all. That shit didn't happen. Being on the other side of the table now, seeing the inner workings of this magical beast. You know, if you've ever dealt with the VA and you confounded how things you know, why isn't this going on? Why isn't this happening? Why can't get this done? Now I see from the inner workings from the inside. And you know, it's it's a bureaucracy can't get around it it is what it is but it took a long time for me to even realize that I am now a federal employee and you know, sometimes to this day I wonder if somebody's going to catch up to me <laughs> and be like can we talk to you That transition from being in an addiction to being a functioning, working individual, and this is gonna sound stupid, and once again, I don't give a shit, is easier for me personally, you know, this is my own personal story, than transitioning out of the military after a deployment into civilian world. And the reason I say this is because when you're an addict or have an addiction, there's a ton of services for you to help you through from federal, state, community, all kinds of services, all kinds of funding, kinds of programs. They want you to get better. They do. Mm-hmm. When you're transitioning out of the
1: military, you get a tap class. How long is your tap? Ours was uh, just classes throughout a week. It was about a week long period. In thirty years, they went from an afternoon to a week. And again, you know, I went through steps and taps in 2012, so that's eight years ago. So you might they might have gained a couple days, maybe two weeks.
2: From what I understand, they don't let us do that. It's still a week. The transitioning out of the military, especially for combat arms who have had multiple deployments, should be something that somebody needs to sit down and really look at. If you're going to get out, there should be a couple of months involved in that.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's just my thought. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and it should not be by uh, instructed by uh, people that have not been in that position. It should be instructed by guys that have uh, – it should be instructed by guys like, you know, guys in similar situations. Um, like you, you-
2: – you two young heart charges they get to get up in there <laughs> take charge of that situation and make it happen
0: <laughs> because dead. the reality
2: yeah. is this you guys only got out eight years ago ten years ago right yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
2: your experience is getting mm-hmm. out is going to be relevant for the next twenty years right mm-hmm. there's a generation coming behind you that's dealing with the exact same stuff that you're dealing with you know you guys give them the guidance necessary
0: well you know we had we had it seems like we had thousands and thousands of um, suicide prevention classes, and thousands of um, classes that are talking about drug addictions and habits, and and why not to beat your wife, and why not to. Uh, <laughs> no, I, it, it's, are oh, you serious? I'm, oh, I'm dead no. serious. You know, we we had it. Richard, you'd you'd be amazed. We had I I specifically remember a a uh, we had a a meeting. It was like battalion wide, and it was um, some sort of drug prevention class. And they had some dudes out there, fucking NCIS type shit, with all sorts of real drugs in the room, and they're saying this is a this, and this is a this, and this is a this. And don't do this because it's bad. Really? Don't do it because it's bad for you? No fucking shit. Like, are you, are you kidding me right now? And, and I'm serious. Like, sit, you sit here and have meeting after meeting about why not to beat your wife. Why not? Don't kill yourself. But they don't have reasons. They don't, they don't sit there and explain to you the feelings that you're going to be going through, the transitional issues that you're going to have problems with. They're just telling you, hey, don't do this and hey, don't do that. And at that point, your head is so big. And and, and everything we've talked about, about getting out and why you're not going to listen to anybody because no one understands and no one gets it and no one understands me and what I've been through and all the sob story that we have.
2: Well, it's not even that. It's not even well, a sob story. Well, it's a sob
0: story now that I, I use it as an excuse for myself. But. But, but, but think of this. Think of this. Think of you guys. Think of yourselves. You guys was locked
2: and cogs strapped, ready to rock and roll. Let's go. let do this. Jumping out of Humvees, kicking down doors. You fucking bad asses. Don't sugarcoat it. That's what you were. Now... You're gonna come to fucking Walmart, and somebody's gonna tell you that's not how you stack the goddamn boxes. The fuck out my face!
1: <laughs> yeah, I always use the um, you know I sometimes use the example of a you take a race car, <laughs> you take it off the track, go ahead and go drive on this road with all the other slow cars, <laughs> or your or or you know in the case of medication, you're you're sticking you know. 85 octane into something that takes you know 110 exactly (laughs) and and you're and 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 you you've got this race car and it's like well just go ahead and figure out how to detune it yourself figure out how to slow down and don't get in trouble and don't put anything inside of it it's not supposed to be there you know what i mean and so all of these things kind of you know you're 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 almost stabbing in the dark that's what i felt like sometimes just over and over again i like that one but but you with what you do now inside of the VA, how do you support veterans and you know this is going to have a couple different facets to it you know do you, can you give some advice for veterans if they're looking to get your services what advice do you have for their families and and maybe some do's and don'ts when they're trying to you know utilize you in my
2: let me start here um, I forgot which one of you guys said it earlier in the beginning of this uh, podcast about the culture shock of going to uh, boot camp, especially Corps boot camp. This is the same thing when you get out; it's a culture shock. Mm-hmm. Um, you go into military relatively young, as we've said several times. You're integrated, and when you get into the military, you get all in, and then you get out, and it you're not all in anymore. You're, there's no squad, you're not in the field talking shit, you're not doing patrols, you're not doing those things. Trying to find yourself, find a your niche. When that becomes a problem, even if it doesn't become a problem, I suggest everybody get out, go down to the VA, register. And if you don't want to use their services, that's fine. Once a year, every couple of years, stick your head in there, see what the hell's going on. You might be able to help somebody. In my role as a peer specialist, uh, when I was out here in the Allentown PA clinic, I was able to help a lot of veterans access services. I was able to help them gain the trust of the mental health professionals Who are there Who are not veterans Because if you're like me And you're getting therapy From some freaking Ivy Leaguer Who uh Never spent a day Scrubbing a fucking M16 And doesn't understand Military culture No matter how many classes they take They didn't live it. You take it as you know Us versus them Situation. That's not the best approach to take, but it's hard to get around that because that's the way you, a lot of people see it. I was able to help bridge that gap for a lot of guys and gals because, especially once Iraq and Afghanistan kicked off and these guys and gals started coming back, a lot of them wanted help. They wanted to talk to somebody, they wanted to see what services. We're out there for them. The problem was, is that there weren't too many combat veterans in roles that could help them. Guys from my generation, most of them went off and did their thing already. You know, I've heard it mentioned in your podcast and others, look at the timeline of this current conflict that we're still engaged in all these years later. You got guys, who, girls there who are there now who weren't born when this shit started. You come back and you want services, there's not a lot of combat veterans there to help you in the sense that you want to connect to somebody who's chewed some of the same kind of dirt you did. It doesn't sound like a lot to ask for But in reality, it is. As a veteran going to the VA to get services, you have to understand that not everybody in there is fucking Rambo. Not everybody in there did three tours. You got people who've never served in the military but come from military families, and they really give a shit, and they really want to help. But imagine this. Dealing with your ass... 8, 10, 15 hours a day Yeah I could barely deal with myself now (laughs) Right (laughs) So I suggest every veteran go to the VA Register and just if you don't want those services Just stick your head in there every now and then See what's going on If you do want services at the VA Do not be afraid to advocate For yourself Never be afraid to advocate for yourself This Is not This is not a, um, what's the word? I got into an argument with a psychologist. He said some stupid bullshit. Oh, we're here, you're here because of us. No bitch, you're here because of us. This isn't something you're giving us. This is earned, period, dot. I never wanna hear that shit come out of your mouth again. Don't forget that. These are benefits that you've earned. They're yours, go get them, go see what they're about. If you don't wanna use them, share with somebody else. The best thing you could do is word of mouth. After I left and we used to have a lot of guys and gals just come into the VA and they just needed to vent and they needed to talk and they wanted to talk to somebody they felt they can connect with. And I did that for a lot of people. Me and uh my devil dog partner, uh Husky, he's out in Florida right now, down there, also in the front Get of the you sun. Some. Yeah. <laughs> So from there I went to the Harlem Vet Center. Now, the VA is comprised of three main components, like our government, it is VBA, which is Veterans Benefits Administration, those are the guys who got the check. The VHA, Veterans Health Administration, those are the guys poking and prodding. And cemetery, those are the guys gonna bury you in the ground. Within those three branches, there are the departments and sub departments, and this, that, and the other. I currently work for, and my role has always been with the VHA. I work now with the Harlem Vet Center. And that is the department is called, or it's called Readjustment Counseling Services. Now, the vet centers started in the 70s, if I got my timeline right. As peer counseling, veterans counseling veterans from the Vietnam era, they came back. And we all know the story of how they got treated. To me, that's the most disgusting thing. All the benefits that we have now are directly attributed to the Vietnam era veteran, period. World War II guys came home they didn't want to be bothered. Vietnam guys came home. They wanted to see what was going on and you know what happened to them. So they started their own thing and all the benefits we got directly attributed to them. They started counseling themselves, peer counseling themselves. After a while, the VA took it on as a pilot program and, you know, Some of the head shrinkers from the VA came up They checked it out They said it's good This, that, and the other Then they extended it Kept going And after a while They co-opted it It is now part of the Department of Veterans Affairs Health Administration Difference is That they kept a level of autonomy To them Because the Vietnam guys Do not trust the VA they don't trust the government at all. I get guys who were in tech I get guys who were in On. They come through, and when it and they've been to the vet center many times, they've been coming for years, and they still ask, "Don't tell the VA shit." I mean, that's it's a shame, but that's what it is because of what they've been through. The vet centers are extremely confidential. We don't give out no information to nobody without your permission, not even the VA hospitals. We have to get your permission. And that's one of the agreements when they got co-opted that the vets made sure that we want to be autonomous. Yeah, we want your support. Yeah, we want your money. Let's not fool ourselves. But we started this for us because of what, the way you treated us. Vets centers those specialize in combat veterans They specialize trauma, combat MST which is military sexual trauma And bereavement Which if, if a service member dies in action Or on active duty We will counsel their family Do bereavement counseling for their family We also do family counseling And this part is cool I think Because you as the veteran, whoever you identify as your immediate family, and they're pertinent in your readjustment counseling, you could bring them in on the counseling. You'd be surprised how many families, members actually want to be there for you. You know, these are things that I paid no attention to. And I'm pretty sure you guys had your gaps in that. How many family members actually want to be there for you? They just don't know how. You, you don't know no. how to let them in. Yeah, that too. Okay. I mean, it's a combination of things. And this is the tricky part about transitioning and readjustment. You have these two things coming to meet, and nobody took the time to mediate or referee. It's like, listen, there's some things you need to know here before mm-hmm. this game starts. You know, These are things you both need to pay attention to. And this is why I think, I don't know who should be responsible. Should it be the DOD? Should it be the VA? Who the hell should be responsible, but they need to do a damn much better job with that. So the vets, let me get back to the vet centers. The vet centers are cool because it's a different atmosphere from the VA hospital. It's not really busy Really hectic You know Hospitals Large medical centers They got a lot of things going on You can't blame them for that Because of the work That the vet centers do They've worked real hard To keep a certain type of environment Very relaxed Not hectic No stress Environment um, We still do uh, Vietnam groups With these guys And these guys are fucking pisses, man, I swear to God. These Vietnam guys, oh my God. But you'd be surprised um, how grateful they are that the vet sinners are there because they created it. We did um, Vietnam recognition because it's a, a commemoration of Vietnam 150th anniversary that President Obama put in and went for several years got these pins these nice little plaques to give out to the guys and they showed up and the only thing they wanted more than anything was to be recognized and say welcome home yeah. Fucking A. 50 50 60 years later that's the biggest thing for them i'm talking about lerps mm-hmm. force sf guys just regular grunts already, i mean they all come through When they know that they're welcomed and they're actually glad that they're home, man, you gotta see the look in their eyes and the look in their face. Because I also hear about tell stories about changing in the plane, they told don't wear your uniform, Uh, getting chased out of the airports, being spat on, coming home and being rejected by their family. They did not get the opportunity to transition in any way, shape, or form. They stepped out of one shit into another pile of shit. I don't even know how to go on from there because the Vietnam War, the social climate, the politics of that whole era, you're 19 years old, you go in you do a tour, you do two tours, you come home, and everybody hates you. Everybody hates you. And we're fucking sitting here complaining.
1: Yeah.
2: Everybody hates you. So the vestinus came from dumb. And I thank God because I use vestinus services myself. <clears throat> Dr. Aiken who was my psychologist, psych, excuse me, psychiatrist down at 20th Street VA. And I'm sorry. I know it was a handful, but it is what it is. Yeah. She uh, sent me to the vet center and she said, you know, I think you need to try these guys. We've done everything but fucking send you up in a rocket. <laughs> and uh it was touch and go there. And, you know, I did the vet center for a few years and I, Really picked up some tricks to deal with myself in transitioning mm-hmm. there. One that I still use to this day. And don't you people be stealing my ideas. <laughs> now, go ahead. Y'all can use them. Uh, his name was Cliff. was a the therapist. My problem was the sleeping in the nightmares was big.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So he said, listen, take a bottle of cologne. Put it next to your bed when you are sleeping." So you can use cologne or water, but cologne is, is different. If you get up in the middle of the night and you're having a nightmare and I had nightmares in the daytime too, uh, still have an issue. He said, if you can get that cologne and spray right in your fucking face. Sounds crazy, right?
1: Nope, not at all.
2: That shit, he said that shit will break anything you got going on. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Reset the senses. All
2: done.
0: Now, oh, the first
2: time I went to do that,
0: <laughs> you had your eyes open, um, your fucking mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, <Eyes> mouth, everything. <laughs> Listen,
2: my nightmares are the type that I'm pretty sure you guys have are familiar with. That um, there's a few seconds there. Uh you don't know what's real and what's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. You know, and it really takes a few seconds, a few long seconds. Try to figure out what the hell is going on. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first time I went to do that and had the nightmare, I jump out of bed and I'm trying to, you know, gather myself. And I see this goddamn bottle of cologne and I just did what he said. <laughs> I grabbed it and I sprayed it right in my face. That shit burned. That shit burned my eyes. That shit burned my nose down my throat. I smelled yeah. good, but that shit tasted nasty, and it it broke whatever the fuck Talk I had going on that time. About fucking reset, right? Oh my god, that's. That's so, interesting. I, I've never heard that. Not, well, not once. Yeah, so the, the, the next week I go, his name is Cliff, the next week I go and I said, yeah, I did that thing with the cologne uh, that you told me. I said, yo, it worked. He looked at me, he laughed. He said, that shit burned, didn't <laughs> he? <laughs> <laughs> I said,
1: like, yeah,
2: shit. it did. That shit fucking burned.
1: Oh, shit. Well, uh, Richard, I just want to express our entire and complete gratitude that you came in and uh, shared with us today your story and uh, and all the, the, the speed bumps along the way and we are very grateful to the position that you've you've gotten to and so a, a big big heartfelt thank you we're gonna go ahead and and wrap it up here um, if anybody is looking to contact us we are at the the Seabag Podcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on Instagram at the Seabag Podcast. And one of the things that's kind of been a staple with with our podcasts is these Medal of Honor readings at the end. And we do them to kind of ground ourselves. It gives us a little bit of gratitude, it gives us a lot of gratitude. Um, for the people that have come before us, and uh, given the the set the example, and given the ultimate sacrifice for our country, and it's these these stories that we bring to light on the podcast that also give an example of what not to do, what to do, how to overcome, and give us this overlay of how to live our life.
0: For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Staff Sergeant Robert J. Miller distinguished himself by extraordinary acts of heroism while serving as a weapons sergeant in Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha 3312, Special Operations Task Force 33, Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force Afghanistan. During combat operations against an armed enemy in Kanar Province, Afghanistan, on January 25, 2008, while conducting a combat reconnaissance patrol through the Gowardish Valley, Staff Sergeant Miller and his small element of U.S. and Afghan National Army soldiers engaged a force of 15 to 20 insurgents occupying prepared fighting positions. Staff Sergeant Miller initiated the assault by engaging the enemy positions with his, vehicle, with his vehicle's turret mounted Mark 19 40 millimeter automatic grenade launcher, while simultaneously providing detailed descriptions of the enemy positions to his command, enabling effective, accurate close air support. Following the engagement, Staff Sergeant Miller led a small squad for, uh, forward to conduct a battle damage assessment as the group neared the small steep narrow valley that the enemy had inhabited a large well-coordinated insurgent force initiated a near ambush assaulting from elevated positions with ample cover exposed and with little available cover the patrol was totally vulnerable to enemy rocket propelled grenades and automatic weapons fire. As point man, Staff Sergeant Miller was at the front of the patrol, cut off from supporting elements and less than 20 meters from enemy forces. Nonetheless, with total disregard for his own safety, he called for his men to quickly move back to covered positions. As he charged the enemy, over exposed ground and under overwhelming enemy fire, in order to provide protective fire for his team. While maneuvering to engage the enemy, Staff Sergeant Miller was shot in his upper torso. Ignoring the wound, he continued to push the fight, moving to draw fire from over 100 enemy fighters upon himself. He then again charged forward through an open area in order to allow his teammates to safely reach cover. After killing at least 10 insurgents, wounding dozens more, and repeatedly exposing himself to withering enemy fire while moving from position to position, Staff Sergeant Miller was mortally wounded by enemy fire. His extraordinary valor ultimately saved the lives of seven members of his own team and 15 Afghanistan National Army soldiers. Staff Sergeant Miller's heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty and at the cost of his own life are in the keepings with the highest traditions in the military service and reflect great credit upon himself and the United States Army.